Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I talk to Professor Jean Farnestock about her book, Rhetorical Style, The Uses of Language in Persuasion. This book presents an overview of rhetorical techniques at all the various levels of their application, from the significance of the choice of a single word all the way up to the construction of a whole passage. It combines a historical perspective on the development of rhetoric with vivid examples of how its methods are still employed today. In this interview, we talk about the role of rhetoric in teaching the skills of language use, the influence of rhetoric on the development of writing conventions, and the nature of rhetorical success in striving after the sublime. And along the way, we touch upon the perhaps underexplored relations between rhetorical theory and contemporary linguistics. Jean, may I begin by asking, how did this book come about? Well, I began uh, my career as a teacher in the writing classroom. And when you're teaching writing, it's uh, not enough to correct errors. You have to give students some uh, guidance in uh, how to manipulate the language in a positive way, how to achieve effects. And the desire to give students positive advice takes you immediately to the rhetorical tradition, where the purpose is, of course, to show, show students, or really not students so much as you know, people with uh, pressing needs, um, how to uh, use language effectively in argument. And I was very fortunate when I began my teaching career at Penn State to be under the guidance of, uh, of uh, Wilma Ebbett, who had been brought from the University of Chicago, where she had worked with Wayne Booth and Kenneth Burke, uh, to uh, sort of uh, reform the writing program at Penn State. And she uh, introduced the new teachers, of whom I was one, to Aristotle's rhetoric. And uh, Aristotle, of course, in the third book of the rhetoric, moves on specific to, to give a lot of specific language advice. Uh, so at that time, which is, it was, uh, that was a few decades ago, um, rhetoric was undergoing a resurgence in the United States. Uh, it's never quite, I don't think, had that resurgence in uh, the UK, but it certainly has in the United States where there was a pressing need to have uh, an informing discipline for the um, composition programs that were springing up everywhere. So I was very fortunate to be part of that resurgence of interest in rhetoric, and uh, that took me to readings in um, the great texts which detail this uh, usefulness of language in persuasion. Um, Quintilian, Erasmus, Melanchthon, uh, Peachum in the um, British tradition of style manuals uh, all um, offer incredibly detailed uh, advice, which was largely lost um, in the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries. And I should mention that a milestone book um, in my understanding of the persuasion language connection was Kyle Perlman and Lucy Ulbrecht's Titeca, The New Rhetoric. This was a work produced first in France uh, in 1958 and translated into English in 1969. And it is a, a kind of a magnificent revisiting of the rhetorical tradition and finding ways in which um, certain argument forms would be 
uh, instantiated in certain linguistic forms. So that, that's a milestone book. Um, as rhetoric got uh, traction in U.S. universities, um, we had a development. My school was not uh, any different. I was then at the University of Maryland. We began to have concentrations in rhetoric, majors in rhetoric. There are now an increasing number of departments in rhetoric. But I had the a chance to teach a course called the Rhetoric of Style, or actually created the course. And it was a way to really focus on um, the language choices that people have, the options that people have to achieve certain kinds of um, purposes in uh, writing. So that was basically an analysis course. It wasn't a writing course. It was an analysis course. And uh, it was for students who had a concentration in rhetoric and language. And uh, this book, this particular book, Rhetorical Style, grew out of the course materials for um, that particular course. So uh, that was, um, it was many years in being put coming together. Um, as, but as the materials grew, I thought that they, I would like to pull them together into this book. In the introduction, you stress this sort of organic nature of the creation, and you also emphasize what the book is not intended to be, that it's not a style guide or a grammar or, in particular, a Jeremiah against particular usage practices. Right. Do you feel those, those genres kind of encroach upon your work in this area and how it's understood? Well, I think that what happens with some language books particularly the ones that are um, that lament language. I don't know, it, and this is also true in some um, literary studies. Certainly when I was growing up, there was this sense that language was a problem, that we were in the prison house of language, that um, language was the source of all our misunderstandings. And if we could only use language correctly, uh, we would all be living in utopia. And so, um, I, I don't know, there was... There was this notion of language as a problem, something to be corrected, something to be overcome. And I think that's not the correct way to view language. I think it's a magnificent instrument that we should celebrate. And that's the kind of approach that I wanted um, to, or let's just say that's the attitude I hope that this book conveys and that um, look at all the amazing things um, that we can achieve through language. Look at the choices. Look at how magnificent this instrument is. So I hope that that um, is something of a corrective to uh, Jeremiah's of language. And it's it's also, of course, uh, as you can, you know, you're you're trained in linguistics, so you know this is it is not a rigorous and by any means a rigorous description of the language. I certainly draw on um, such descriptions, but when you're making when you want to um, scope out the language for the purpose of somebody making choices, you do have to do uh, some schematizing and some simplifying. So I don't want anyone to think that the book is, is um, you know, represents any complete theory of language or any, gra um, any grammar, particular grammar. To take out that point, um, do you feel that the rhetorical tradition is neglected in contemporary linguistics? Well, you know, I'm not... A, a contemporary linguist, um, I have that impression, I have to say, Chris, as an outsider, um, and I do know something about, a little bit about the way um, the rhetorical tradition is handled uh, in Europe. There is a, um, a magnificent new, a society which is maybe about 30 years old now. It's called the International Society for the History of Rhetoric. 
and it's dedicated to um, bringing back this magnificent tradition. And and the fact that its work is largely recoverable shows you that it's been um, a neglected tradition. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, you'll have to correct me, but um, there is no Department of Rhetoric, I don't believe, in the UK. I went to graduate school there, by the way, way back when. And um, there certainly are in the United States. In fact, there's a growing number of them. So uh, I think that there's maybe a difference you know, between what's done abroad and what's done in the United States. We have a kind of a unique university culture, and uh, that's been a hospitable environment for rhetoric and composition to make its resurgence uh, post-World War II. I mean, something that struck me particularly uh, reading your book was that Time and again, it touches upon themes that seem to me profoundly relevant for a lot of things that are going on in linguistics, but which really don't get discussed a lot from a linguistic perspective, either in Europe or America, as far as I'm aware. I, um, what were you going to say? Oh, just uh, you know, I wonder whether you, whether you feel that there's room for more interdisciplinary work. Well, yeah. um, absolutely. Um, I think that it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, when I I think linguists have a different notion of the object of study. Uh, they're interested in um, you know getting a sampling of language in use that is seems natural. Um, you know they will record data and transcribe it and study it and in, in informal exchanges, certainly in uh, conversation analysis, right? Um, you know, you'll tape people walking into a store and how they speak, you know, to, to the person behind the counter or whatever. So there's a notion of natural language as the object of study. In the rhetorical tradition, the object of study is has been traditionally purposive language. That is, um, people have intentions. Uh, all the examples in the book come from deliberately produced discourse as opposed to spontaneous discourse. And it's easier that with deliberately produced discourse, such as an encomium on Audrey Hepburn or a newspaper article on uh, what a particular African leader said, um, it's easier in that case to identify the purpose behind the text and therefore to look at the um, language choices as they relate to that purpose. So I think that that slice of discourse that rhetoricians tend to look at has that difference from what linguists tend to look at, if, you, if that seems um, fair enough to you. And, well, whether or not a linguist should, you know, how, how much linguists would prefer to um, expand into that purposive territory, I think is interesting. I'm not aware that um, linguists spend a lot of, well, they're with political speeches, for instance. They may spend time with what they would call political discourse, uh, which includes, um, newspaper articles, spontaneous talk, speeches on a particular issue, but they don't, they're not after the sort of high profile texts that uh, rhetoricians have traditionally been after. For instance, in the book, as you probably noticed, there are a lot of examples of presidential rhetoric. Yes. Hard to imagine anything more deliberate <laughs> and planned uh, than, uh, you know, a presidential speech that has major policy implications. So uh, that's, that would be the sort of, um, on some kind of continuum, that would be the highest order of purposive text that a rhetorician would look at. And as re rhetoric has been set up as an arts since antiquity, 
it's created an enormous taxonomy of purposes and it kind of works backward from those purposes. So for instance, from Aristotle's time, uh, he set up a, a really fundamental distinction between um, types of speeches. Uh, forensic, deliberative, and epideictic are the three major categories. I don't know if any of this is familiar to you, but forensic speeches would be what you would find in the courtroom, and it has to do with arguing um, events into place when they're under contention, matters of fact. Uh, deliberative speeches occur in the legislative body, and they have to do with deliberating over what shall we do, what should we do. And epideictic speeches are celebratory. Um, they have to do with uh, marking occasions and sort of solidifying the um, ethical commitments of a community. And if you think about it, those three very broad categories of speeches still pretty well persist. And what happens in Aristotelian rhetoric and, and various rhetorics since then is that you identify the speech situation and you work backwards to the types of arguments that would work in those situations and then to the kinds of forms that would deliver those arguments given the variables of the context you're in, the audience you're facing, the resource character, and how those appeals can be drawn on. So rhetoric has this enormous superstructure in place of how persuasive discourse works. And it's therefore um, set, in, set there so that when you discuss language forms, you um, connect them to those uh, constructs that are available to talk about the general argument uh, that the rhetor is undertaking. My impression is that in linguistics, the tendency has been to go only a certain way up this hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So people will consider speech acts, for example, but yes, yeah. uh, wouldn't necessarily try to expand that taxonomy to the to the whole range of possible higher order communicative goals. And yet, as you explain, this this taxonomy is already very much in place. And uh, indeed, I think one of the key strengths of your book is the way you explain many of these technical terms and particularly how those vary in the way they're used by different authors in the rhetorical tradition. Do you feel that rhetoric is in some sense a field in some need of demystifying? Well, I think um, rhetoric is in some need of being defended because I don't know how it is uh, in the UK, but it's it has among the public still a, a pejorative connotation, right? It's Things are mere rhetoric. Uh, I think that's changing a bit. Um, I think that because uh, we have a generation of students now in the United States who, who are, have come through uh, writing programs in the university level, which are founded in rhetoric, it's beginning to have a, a positive connotation. But when you talk about demystifying, I think the first thing you have to get over is that killer dissociation between technique and content um, such that technique is in the way of content or technique is always obfuscation of content and there's some pure form or way of saying something and then there's this, um, you know, awful way that gets added on when people want to trick one another. So I think that's maybe the demystifying that, that rhetoric needs. Otherwise, I, th I don't know, I think... Um, Linguists have a different, you know, as I say in the introduction, linguists and literary stylisticians and others, they have different goals, explanatory goals, I think, than, than rhetoricians. Uh, pragmatics being an exception, of course, because that's, you know, language in use and in context. But um, 
rhetoricians are, you know, after big, bigger picture communicative purposes. And um, I think that I like to think that these all these arts are interconnected, though. Um, in our language, rhetoric, and writing concentration at the university, we have our students take courses uh, in language uh, and, as well as in rhetoric, and uh, you know they're obviously uh, complementary. I've spoken to some people who are interested in the in the idea of identifying, for example, frames and discourse techniques in order to expose them if you will yes and make that and make that association between technique and content clear in order that people will have proper access to the facts and won't be misled yes do you feel that you empower your students in that way by by teaching them these techniques oh yes i think i think um i think they are empowered um but the problem with doing that is that it's it's very difficult to say what techniques in a particular text are um, worth noticing. Uh, so really, um, I, I'm aware of using um, linguistic analysis for purposes of, of criticism, particularly political criticism. Uh, the uh, critical discourse analysts, right, are, are people who do this. And they're, and they're after... Um, techniques that they think reveal the ideological biases of the source and some kind of hidden manipulation that's going on, that the text is gaining power over the audience. But that's sort of what I was talking about earlier, about this language is a problem. It's a dangerous medium. And I really want people to um, appreciate that it's a wonderful medium, and that um, sometimes they're, they're, the resources are such that they're not even aware of them, and they should be more aware of them as they become better and better retours. Um, so I think what happens in the in the notion of disclosing the um, nefarious right project in the text, um, I. I I think that what happens is that certain things get selected that fit the ideological bias of the um, analyst to begin with, and who knows what else is going on in the text that is really part of its achieving its rhetorical goals. I don't know if I'm putting that quite correctly, but... I think I agree with you. Um, quite often I seem to see people objecting to text that they feel has a particular ideological slant, but... If you're not ideologically committed one way or the other, that maybe isn't quite as clear mm -hmm. as if you're going with a particular analytic goal in mind. Yeah, I, I actually think it's it's not it shouldn't be the place of the academic um, student of language to um, have too much of an agenda. I know that's that's a sort of an unpopular thing to say, but uh, I think that it's the goal of someone who's interested in language as it as it uh, serves rhetorical purposes to sort of give the biggest, richest, thickest picture possible, so that all the dimensions um, that can that can be at play um, are you know available to be admired and or used when it's your turn to be a rhetor. Um, to give you, I guess, some examples from the text, uh, I think that. If you are thinking about purposes of the text and how they appear in um, the way the you know the way the text is written, there is an example uh, from Edward Abbey, um, who is uh, I don't know if you 
remember who he was. He, he's in the United States. He's, he's seen as the founder of eco-terrorism. In fact, he really didn't want people to be uh, in uh, national parks. He wanted wilderness to be wilderness. And he served for a short time as a, a park ranger in, um, I think it was Canyonlands National Park, what is now Canyonlands National Park. And he, when he was there, he put a sign inside the restroom uh, telling people to, um, it's on page 239. I have it, yes. Uh. He said, uh, attention, watch out for rattlesnakes, coral snakes, whip snakes, finger runes, centipedes, millipedes, ticks, mites, black widows, cone-nosed kissing bugs, sulpagids, tarantulas, horned toads, gila monsters, red ants, fire ants, Jerusalem crickets, chinch bugs, and the great hairy desert scorpions before being seated. Well, he uses this enormous series, obviously, because he wants to frighten people. You can imagine the context. Uh, to never come back because this is a very dangerous place to be. So the quantity, presenting it in a series, um, serves his purpose perfectly. So here's a case where extending a series within a sentence, and I go into some detail in the book and how he constructs that series. So he gives people a reading frame for how to read it, and then he ends with this you know, magnificent, great, uh, hairy uh, scorpion. Um, it has an enormous effect, it's very dramatic, and it's pretty obvious how this particular form, uh, this series, it's an incrementum, uh, works to achieve his purpose. And so if you're a student analyzing discourse, uh, it's, you know, this one's, an e this one's easy, right? But if you look at um, Woodrow Wilson's speech to bring the United States into World War I, uh, which uh, that's, there's an example from that speech used uh, twice in the book, once in, on page 163. I point out um, the way uh, Wilson uses tense choices, right, where he uh, winds up, you know, uh, he's trying to get Congress to agree to a declaration of war. And in the beginning of World War One, it wasn't uh, a foregone conclusion that the U.S. would go to war. But as, as the speech goes on, he, he imagines um, everyone already agreeing with him and already we are accepting and we fight. He, he switches to the present tense. And this is not the vivid historical uh, present that is used for uh, event narration, you know, to make it vivid. This is um, moving people along in a progression of tenses in this speech, it's a, you know, many-page speech, to bring them to uh, where they're all acting together exactly as he wants them to do. Now, that is not an obvious um, It requires a little bit more, right, sleuthing to um, find a, a device like that. And so what I want in this, what I want this book to do is to give students um, so many more options of the things they should be looking for in a text when they want to see how it achieves um, the effects that uh, are arguably the goal of the retour. One of the things maybe the book doesn't, um, how should I say this, explain as saliently as it might is the fact that it's very difficult to decide what you should be looking for when you want to do a rhetorical analysis. So uh, do you, how do you know what to look for? And the answer is, of course, you don't. 
uh, know what to look for. Too many people just look at the metaphors. I, I wish I had, you know, a nickel for every study of the metaphors of X, some text, mm -hmm. but there's so much more that can be going on. So uh, just the kind of overview I hope that this book presents tells people that um, there's a lot more to look at to see the effectiveness of the language in a text than just the, you know, high profile dev devices like uh, metaphor. Indeed, it struck me very much that um, as you go through the book, there are areas where there are very um, intuitive uh, and perhaps somewhat obvious uh, selections made for rhetorical purposes, and other areas where what's being uh, what's being proposed as an analysis is a lot more subtle. So, to take the example of word choice, which you discuss in the first part of your book, mm -hmm. you first note some of the more familiar effects that, for example, the use of French terms or Latin or Greek terms in English conveys a particular uh, style and attitude. In chapter three, you then advance to something very much more subtle, uh, talking about categories of word choice, where you raise the notion of taking a census of parts of speech. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us about that? Well, um, that, uh, that chapter is rather an odd one because I knew there was, there, there was a sort of piece missing because when people do... Um, try to, um, how should I put this, T take a census of the language, uh, something beyond just looking at the metaphors, they um, they often do it in an unprincipled way. In fact, the first pair, the first introduction to that chapter was uh, a little bit more negative about some of the practices that you usually see. So what I wanted to point out to people is that when you look at the language of something, you probably are coming to it with some kind of um, agenda so that you only notice certain things. So what you want to do is to sort of back away from that and to have perhaps a um, at least a first pass way of organizing the language so that you um, are taking apart the language so that you do it in a more mechanical way and then you're able to focus um, on the results of that first pass analysis. And so one of the ways to do this, of course, is, to, is, is, as it says in the book, to take a census of the parts of speech and simply to divide the text up. Uh, you know, it's like you had sorting bins in front of you and you throw all the adjectives in one bin, all the nouns in another and all the verbs in another. And uh, that forces you then to look at the results and to see, my gosh, of the, uh, you know, adjectives being used here or the adverbs being used here. Um, this is this is what I notice now. I, I'm focusing, and I can I can um, look at this particular um, usage in a principled way. So, for instance, in the in the compared passages that I use there. And by the way, these things usually work better when you have compared passages, right? When you're when you see two retors who are have pre pretty much the same subject matter and pretty much the same purpose, and what you want to see then is how they're going about it differently. So um, what I found there was, of course, this rather restricted verb palette from these from these writers, and um, different uses of the prepositions that were I, I thought kind of interesting. And then once I'd isolated the once you isolate the different word classes, then you can uh, then in a more disciplined way, um, you know, yield an interpretation from those word classes. I'm not a big fan of that method, I should say. Um, I think at the end of it, I say, well, you know, you know, what are you left with when you're done with that? So 
it, but it, it is a kind of an, um, an interim thing to do, like looking at the other two uh, main methods in that chapter are to look at the um, semantic fields, lexical fields that the book is using, and uh, to look at uh, the levels of generality of the word choices. And there are, as you know, both, both of those um, approaches, there are uh, websites devoted to um, organizing the language by semantic fields, or there's WordNet, you know, putting the language in uh, you know, hierarchies, organizing the hypernyms and hyponyms, etc. So um, there's, these are major projects in language analysis that you can tap into. But, you know, you said the, the first part of the text was familiar, you know, everyone knows about... Um, well, here's the, uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxon vocabulary, the French vocabulary, and the Latin vocabulary. Actually, most people talk about only the core, the, you know, the um, Old English core and the Latin, right, derived words. So mm -hmm. it was actually the rhetoricians in the 18th century, probably as a result of all the um, dictionary projects of the time and the, you know, encyclopedias being written at the time, that they became aware of the, you know, the words that came into the language um, in the 11th century and produced Middle English. So they're the ones who began to speak of the, um, the language having three sources. And yes, this is familiar. It should be familiar to all students of language that English has this unique history. But what's not as familiar to people is to understand how that's strategically used in argument. And for instance, in the one of my favorite examples in the book is, is the encomium of Audrey Hepburn, where the thesis of the um, praiser is that um, she has these um, French uh, attributes, and of course those are given in French words, the elegance, the panache, etc. But then she has these uh, really genuine qualities which endear her to, to her American audience, and Freshness, wholeness, and sweetness are the words used, and those, of course, are all core words uh, from uh, old, you know, deriving from Old English words. So uh, that's the strategic use of those language differences, and that's what we want to do. We don't want to just simply notice, oh, here's a, you know, core word, and here's a, um, a French word, here's a Latinate uh, abstract word. But how are those words being selectively used? Uh, in this case, you know, to, to prize out one set of qualities as opposed to another. Taking up that point, you uh, mentioned that you deal in this book with examples from planned text rather than spontaneous speech. Do you feel that's something that people actually do uh, match in spontaneous speech, perhaps unconsciously? Well, it depends. I, uh, I, I, would, I would guess that um, most spontaneous speech is carried on in core words, right? Um, and uh, so I doubt that some of that, some of those distinctions carry over to the degree they do in um, the elaborate and, you know, purposive uh, rhetorical discourse that I look at. But uh, I would think that some, some speakers who are simply more practiced or experienced would do those things. Uh, there is an example in the book of, about the, about, uh, from, a, from an academic article um, where uh, it's pretty clear that she's uh, talking about plagiarism and then switches over into how much she personally is offended by this. And 
you can see this switch into uh, core words. And that, when, when the switch is made into core words, it sounds more like speech. It sounds more like genuine, you know, a genuine utterance as opposed to a planned statement. And another place where it, later on the, uh, in the book, I think it's in chapter four, where I talk about language varieties, I talk about register shifts. And uh, there's an example from Colin Powell, and it's from a, um, a news conference where he's, he's making a statement at the beginning of the uh, Gulf War. And at the end of that um, briefing, he, he shifts out of military language into what is certainly, you know, core words. He, he's talking about the Iraqi army, and he says, you know, first we're going to cut it off, and then we're going to kill it. And that's uh, certainly... Um, Typical of, um, you know, that spoken genuineness, right? The, the sort of uh, brutal intention behind those words. And, and he slips into um, a different register at that point to, to convey that message. Uh, and I want to answer your question actually in another way, if I may. You're asking, if I may, if I understand it right, you're asking about whether or not these rhetorical effects occur in spontaneous discourse, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and I want to connect back to this notion of how you notice the effects when you're analyzing a piece of uh, purposive discourse. Um, one of the one of the ways that actually didn't make it into the book with as much detail as it as it was in a draft was that when I have my students trying to figure out what they should notice, I actually have them count the words in sentences. Now I, we're almost always working from written text, okay, but you know so that they will go through the text and they'll write after each sentence how many words were in that sentence. And when you do that, you know, you will get something like 25, 26. There are a couple of pages on this in that in the chapter on prosody and punctuation, but you'll get a profile and I, I want I have them just write the numbers in a list. And what you will see is something like, you know, 26, 27, then uh, 13, then 4, 3, and back up to 18, 27, or something like that. In other words, you will, in um, a lot of deliberate rhetorical discourse, see very, very, dis very great differences in sentence length. And what I think we're doing there is we're approximating the prosodic contours, right, of speech, of how one would speed up and become clipped for emphasis. And so I think that the prosody of spoken language is always just below the surface in effective, you know, written um, rhetorical discourse. This emphasis on speech rhythms underwriting um, arguments. Well, of course, I should back up here and say that rhetoric was originally an art of oral performance, wasn't it? I mean, but certainly not of spontaneous conversation, but of holding the ground as a speaker. But uh, in the training for um, this, uh, this kind of performance, uh, students were trained in um, rhythmic patterns in antiquity. I have a, a very brilliant colleague, uh, Vesela Valievicharska is her name, and she's working on a book, on, in, particularly in Byzantine rhetoric, where um, they taught accentual patterns. Uh, they taught argument forms as spoken heard patterns, and uh, these persisted. She found that when um, the Greek sermons were translated into Slavic languages, you know, 
dissimilar language, they nevertheless worked very hard to keep the same accent patterns so that they could deliver the arguments with this same prosodic contour. So I think we're just coming to understand how spoken prosody you know, filters into uh, written discourse forms. And uh, again, one of the ways a kind of a first approximation to look at that is to see the, just to see how sentence lengths, clause lengths are manipulated uh, in a published, in a written passage. It kind of get, helps you recapture that. And indeed, you make the point in that uh, chapter where you combine prosody and punctuation, but rhetorical considerations were central to the development of written punctuation and defining these notions of sentence length. Um, and you talk about when these decoupled. Was that with the advent of literacy, what widespread literacy? What I, you mean uh, when a performance issues in punctuation sort of decoupled from grammatic, marking grammatical structure? Yeah. Um, yes, simple answer. <laughs> uh, when people are are taught uh, largely, their literacy is, is um, largely how to manipulate written texts and uh, read them and produce them as opposed to perform them, right? Uh, to command an audience in a real situation, which was the, the core of uh, rhetorical education in antiquity. Um, that's absolutely when uh, punctuation became, you know, a, a marker of something else than how to perform the text, yes. I'd like to go back, if I may, uh, to the first section of your book. Despite the warning you gave against it earlier, I'd like to briefly mention the chapter you developed to tropes such as metaphor irony and so on. Yes. Um, particularly because uh, I have a personal interest here. You mentioned the work of Paul Grice on how we detect non-literal meanings and, if you like, decode these tropes. Uh, I'm very interested in this pragmatic angle, personally, but from that viewpoint, it's very easy to overlook the subtle distinctions between the different tropes. Do you feel those distinctions remain important? Well, they do um, if you're teaching them to use them. <laughs> um, and again, and they do for um, appreciation of the language as a magnificent instrument. Uh, let's, for instance, uh, if you're talking about why do we bother um, Making distinctions beyond the four major tropes, is that what, that's the sort of thing? Because every, pretty much everybody knows metonymy, uh, metaphor, synecdoche, and irony. But if you go into, for instance, um, agnomenatio, why do we pay attention to agnomenatio? Um, that's the renaming trope. That's where we, um, or antonomasia, see, I'm, I'm mixed up myself here. Um, this is the device of replacing a proper name with a descriptive label. Um, it's um, certainly, that's not a household word anymore, the way metaphor is antonomasia, but it's a very common practice. And uh, my students are always fascinated by the fact that they, they uh, use these all the time, that um, sports figures, right, are always being renamed according to some kind of salient attribute. It's a, it's a kind of a standard practice that people do. So if you want to sort of notice things to appreciate them or to um, see what the mechanism is, uh, I think it's worth uh, looking at a deeper level. In um, his analysis of tropes, Melanchthon, for instance, uh, separates out metalepsis, uh, from uh, metaphor, metonymy, etc. And 
Metalepsis is when um, you use a phrase like healthy food and you make an effect of something into an attribute of it. So we think nothing of using the phrase healthy food, right? Sure. But the point is that why is the food healthy? Because it presumably causes health, you see? So you've taken its effect and you potential effect because obviously it isn't an inevitable effect, but you make that into an attribute of the, um, the noun you're, you're modifying. So uh, by making those distinctions, you, no you start to notice things, right, that you wouldn't notice normally, which is the goal of rhetorical analysis, and you potentially may then use them. Um, you may think to use them when you yourself are crafting rhetorical discourse. Uh, the, for instance, the, um, in the rhetorical tradition, they made um, many distinctions among types of series that we ignore and we certainly don't teach. Um, they distinguished series which list species of a genus from series which le um, list parts of a whole, from seri uh, series which list adjuncts or features of an object. And if you think about it, those are very um, important distinctions to make because you, if, you, if you have a partition and it's supposed to be a complete partition of an object according to some principle, um, that enumeration should be finite, right? If you're listing the parts according to that principle, you should be able to list them in such a way that they all add up to the whole. Mm -hmm. But if you're listing species of a genus, there, there's no sense in which the species add up to a genus. You see what I mean? Sure. You, you, so they're making these extremely fine distinctions which are immediately relevant to your conceptualizing a subject matter. And that's why I think it's worth recovering, as this book does, some of the minutiae of um, the rhetorical doctrine of the figures because of the you know, ways in which it stimulates our thinking and invention in argument. Well, as I said, I think your book does an excellent job in that uh, in that particular. I can't promise that I can remember all the terms and what they mean based on having read it a couple of times, but uh, I'm hoping they will stick in due course. Well, there are a lot of aids. For instance, there's a um, uh, Silver Rhetorica is a website uh, which uses the uh, early modern uh, figure manuals to give um, very elaborate lists and definitions and examples of the figures of speech. And there are, uh, the book lists them, a number of, um, you know, works that um, give you uh, an overview of certain uh, frequently used figures. Uh, there was an important book in the recovery of rhetoric called uh, Classical Rhetoric for the Modern Student by Ed Corbett, Edward Corbett. And it has a, um, a starter set, you might say, of useful rhetorical figures. So um, I would recommend that book especially. Turning, if I may, to the second portion of your book, mm -hmm. where you begin to talk about uh, sentence architecture. Mm -hmm. Again, my attention was drawn to the relevance of this, to the relevance of this work for psycholinguistics. Um, for example, you discuss the effect of modifier placement and the use of a surprising word as causes of emphasis. And you also mentioned the way that sentence form inevitably contributes to the meaning. I wondered whether you felt that linguistics had taken a more rhetoric-friendly 
turn in recent times, I mean, since, or by contrast with generative linguistics, for example? I'm not sure I can answer that. Um, the advice or the, you know, the descriptions in that chapter um, stay pretty close to the rhetorical tradition. And the notion, for instance, of the difference between loose and periodic sentences, I'm not sure what a psycholinguist would do with that. In a periodic sentence, you wait for the grammatical completion of the sentence to the end, so there's a kind of a, right, a little bit of mystery created in the sentence if it has a long uh, middle interruption especially. And enormous amount of emphasis gets placed on that completing word as it's not only the final word, but it's also the word that finishes the you know main predication of the sentence. Loose sentences get done with what they have to say grammatically, and then they simply go on and on in this, uh, you know, trailing with trailing modifiers. And that's a, actually a very characteristic sentence in, in modern prose. So um, I'm not sure I, that I'm aware of what a psycholinguist would find of interest in that distinction. Are you are you talking about um, place, you know, emphasis or when people are aware of when the predication is complete? Well, a combination of those. Uh, really, I was thinking whether there might be a contrast with the generative approach of assuming that sentences which uh, differ a great deal in their surface structure oh, actually oh. fundamentally uh, have fundamental identity versus approaches which uh, take the, for example, the position in the sentence in the surface structure to be important because of the way it uh, goes into the memory, goes, it goes into a stack, if you like. Yes, yes. Um, I do think that um, sentence architecture is exploited by people who want to control how a sentence is understood. And so they will begin, right, with often with um, some modification which sets up an interpretive framework for the rest of the sentence. There's no, no question about that. As far as um, generative uh, linguistics is concerned in this notion, for instance, of kernel sentences being morphed into uh, some structure then which is subordinated in the final sentence, that's uh, been a staple in um, writing instruction for a long time. Uh, we Students have been given, for instance, a series of uh, short, simple sentences, kernel sentences, if you will, and told to combine them in different ways to give one of the predications, you know, a higher profile than the other. So oddly enough, um, that's been a staple writing exercise that found its way into our instructional repertoire a couple of decades ago. And I'm, a, I'm all in favor of that. It's a, it's a really a wonderful method for, you know, showing students how much manipulation they can do before they come up with the final sentence. And indeed, how much uh, additional meaning is added by that manipulation? Yes, exactly, exactly. How much control? How much they're controlling the Our word is emphasis, right? What parts come? Which parts have high profile? Which which don't? But you're cons you know you're constrained in your sentence architecture, of course, by passage coherence. I mean, about where you, where how how the sentences are going to fit together and where they're going to go. You can't you know independently plan each sentence and wind up with an in incomprehensible passage at the end of it. So. Sure. And to, to leap ahead then to the, the last portion of your book where you turn to passage construction. Uh, again, you exemplify this with reference to various texts, including many political speeches, but the um, text you close with a detailed discussion of 
is the final paragraph of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. Mm -hmm. What particularly draws you to that text? Well, um, my main interest is, uh, in, my, in my other, other academic life, is uh, the what we call the rhetoric of science, that is studying uh, scientific uh, discourse as persuasion. So that's a text I've used and taught many, many times. And uh, I was, of course, intrigued by the fact that that particular paragraph has been so noticed by so many people, and also by the fact that it exists in two other formats. So the fact that it, there are two other early drafts, you see, what, what a rhetorical analyst really, really wants, ideally, is to see uh, several versions of the same text as uh, the retor right planned, you know, intuitively usually sense that you know certain effects were not coming out and then change the text and you have this track record of the changes that's by the way what opens the text right as an example from Franklin Delano Roosevelt but um, I wanted to end uh, not only with a text that allowed me to uh, summarize the the four sections of the book but also that um, exemplified the sort of highest rhetorical goal which um, is amplification to the, to the point of what we would call the sublime, where people are sort of overwhelmed by uh, the power of the text. And I, I mentioned a couple of candidates um, in my own. Uh, it's an argument, of course, of, as to whether or not a, a text is doing that. But there's been a lot of agreement about the power of that particular paragraph. So that was a, an easy choice for me um, to show then uh, how this text works both at in terms of word choice, sentence architecture, uh, the interactive dimension of it, and uh, the passage construction of it. And the more, of course, in analyzing this one paragraph, of course, um, you know, there are many, many pages analyzing it, which shows you, right, how in doing a rhetorical analysis, you don't aim at some kind of exhaustive accounting of effects, but you, um, you aim at those language features that you think are really salient for its uh, rhetorical achievement. And by, the, by that I mean it's achieving its purpose for the audience it was addressing from the retor, right, that it was coming from. And by the way, I hope you're not unfamiliar with that word retor. It means a speaker or a writer, you know, sure. producing rhetorical text. So that's why the, it, it, it ends there because... Um, that's a passage I was familiar with that exemplified um, all the features that I wanted to summarize in the book um, and achieving a kind of overwhelming power um, in the discourse. Taking the book as a whole, you proceed from the lexical level to the passage level, going via the sentence level, and indeed a section on the interactive dimension, which I haven't really had time to ask you very much about here. My impression is that as you go up in levels, it's still possible to classify uh, strategies, but it becomes increasingly difficult to master them. Is that really the case? Well, um, when people actually write, they, they turn the, the whole thing around, don't they? Mm. Um, people first have a sense of their purpose, what they want to accomplish. Uh, that purpose may be defined for them by the situation and context they're in, you know, and the genre they have to choose to achieve that purpose. You know, someone who's writing an obituary for the New York Times, for instance, using a, an absurd example maybe, uh, pretty much knows that they have to produce um, a sentence 
with a huge mid-level, a positive structure, because that's the way all of those obituaries are written. So, you know, they have an enormous genre constraint. So people start off with their purpose and their genre. That produces the passages and the interactive dynamics. That constrains the sentences, and that further constrains the word choice. So when we produce text, everything goes in reverse, right? Now, since you say that's the most hard, that's the hardest to manipulate. Um, actually, when people were being taught rhetoric in the in the classical and early modern tradition, they kind of worked on these skills in a sort of a pincer movement, right? So they were taught, in fact, to create discourse chunks or whole passages, which achieved, you know, certain effects were of certain type. And at the same time, they had all their other language skills being uh, reinforced, their um, you know, power over synonyms, their ability to invert sentences and write them in different forms. But what was done then and what we still do in the writing classroom is we always have students create whole texts and we work on their skills you know, simultaneously from the bottom up and the top down. And um, there's a lot more that could be said just at that passage level, but I think we can we could teach at that level as well as at the at the smaller scale. Our time is nearly up here, so let me conclude by asking, what's next? What are you working on now? Well, I would like, in fact, it's an interesting uh, an easy connection segue here. Um, I would like to work on a textbook on style. This is this rhetorical style. This this is an analysis a textbook for analysis but it's not a textbook for production. And so I, I, I would like to, to do a textbook that, you know, turns, the, turns it around, begins with passage construction and works, uh, you know, would be used in a writing classroom. This text would not be used in a writing classroom. It would be used in a, a classroom studying rhetorical style. So I would like to do that. Other than that, in my, um, my uh, other scholarly interest is, again, in the rhetoric of science, and I'm particularly interested in um, visual rhetoric of science, that is how visuals are used to persuade in science. And I'm, um, my most immediate project is on um, how the verbal text that uh, is used to control the images. And I'm particularly interested in uh, new imaging techniques when they first get the results of some new imaging technique and they're looking at things they've never looked at before, how they then uh, find the words, if you will, to control the audience's understanding of the image. Um, for instance, the first people who used an electron, who developed electron microscopy, right, produced images that at a level of um, magnification that had never been seen before. And so they, you might say that that puts pressure on the language to, to interpret. So that's that's uh, what I'm interested in at, at this point. That would be that's my next um, sort of big project. Well, it sounds like something with a lot of potential going forward as the developments continue and we continue to need new ways to express them. Right. Yes, well, we, that's true. There are, there are more and more new imaging techniques um, being developed. And um, it's really an interesting problem, but it's, it's been there since the first, you know, combination of uh, image and text uh, in uh, the scientific tradition. So um, there's a particularly interesting um, 19th century microscopist I was interested in, Henry Clifton Sorby who um, created the first um, thin sections of rocks 
and looked at them under the microscope and what did he what was he seeing you know how would you describe uh, suddenly seeing um, you know granite at a magnification of uh, 400 so he solves the problem in very interesting ways and the the language that's in control if you will of novel images is what I'm interested in well I look forward to reading more about that in the future okay. but for the meantime I'll say once again how much I enjoyed reading your book and thank you very much for your time well, well thank you very much for giving me a chance to talk about it I've been talking to Jean Farnestock about her book, Rhetorical Style, The Uses of Language in Persuasion. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language, saying thank you for listening.